Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, chef, culinary entrepreneur, activist, just some of the hats worn by Ashley Rouse, my guest today. A chef for the past 15 years, Ashley is the founder of Trade Street Jam Company. It started in her tiny apartment on Trade Street in Charlotte, North Carolina. Eventually, Ashley made her way to Brooklyn, where her minority and woman-certified small batch company is now based. Ashley creates fruit-forward and clean-tasting vegan jams that are low in sugar but high in flavor and are best used in craft cocktails, barbecue sauces, meat glazes, baked goods, yogurt, salad dressing, and on and on. A few enticing samples. Blueberry lemon basil jam, smoked yellow peach, strawberry chipotle and fig, sour cherry ginger jam, and mulled Merlot. Another trade street product, sweet potato biscuit mix. There's also a Jam Sessions cookbook digital download. Ashley's also about giving back. In an effort to support her community, she teaches jam classes to children at underprivileged schools and is working on an initiative to use residual jams to feed those less fortunate. Clearly, we are in for a mouth-watering conversation with this culinarily creative woman. So, Ashley, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, I have to start by asking, are you a North Carolinian, or are you really an East Coast person? I guess I'm a Chicagoan. Oh, okay. I'm originally from Chicago, but I lived in North Carolina for about eight years. I went to culinary school there. And then I stayed there working in like restaurants and hotels and things like that um, for a few years after that. And that's where I met my husband, who is from North Carolina. So I've got a little Southern, you know, yeah, it's a kind of nice mix, right? Midwest, yeah. Northeast, Southern. Talk about your interest in food. Was that always something that interested you growing up? For as long as I can remember, yes. I have always grown up in a family that loved cooking and that gathered around food. Um, my grandfather was always entertaining and cooking these really great meals. I remember him boiling lobsters and making big batches of grits and collard greens and all these like kind of Southern staples and different things. And so, yeah, I, I always kind of grew up around food. I think I started finding a love for the Food Network when I was maybe like uh, 15. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was just something I watched all the time. And I think at some point in there, I said, hmm, maybe I could do this. So mm-hmm. I, I really didn't have a an idea like most adolescents of what I wanted to do when I went to college. So I think when I kind of was like, hmm, how's culinary school? Everyone was on board for it. So that's what I did. Did you experiment in your family kitchen growing up? Did you make meals or bake? I did make meals. I, I don't think I was doing anything like too fancy or crazy. I remember my mom making me cook dinner <laughs> because she was a single parent <laughs> and I was home from school at four and she might not be home till seven or, mm-hmm. or even later. So it was a kind of, here's what we're making for the week. Make this. You get home at four. You have plenty of time. Right, right. So I was almost forced to kind of make some uh, meals, but yeah. That's that's really where it started. I don't think I started experimenting till later on. Mm-hmm. But it eventually became a labor of love where you were doing it because you kind of had to and had an interest, but then it became so much more than that. It did become more than that. I, again, I think when I started seeing the Food Network and kind of understanding what culinary life could be like, it was just very alluring. 
Food Network has a way of making it seem so glamorous mm. um, and easy and fun. Not that it's not, but I think working in the industry brings its own challenges. And so it can be a little bit tougher than what it looks like on TV. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think along the way, I just kind of found myself enjoying cooking and, and wanting to do more. In reading about you, I saw that you worked as a chef at the Ritz-Carlton in Charlotte. Was that a very, very big deal for you when you got out of school? It was a very, very big deal. I remember um, the brand new Ritz-Carlton opened up just maybe blocks from where I lived. What year was that? I knew you were going to ask me that. This must have been maybe 2006. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe 2006. So okay. I might have been about a sophomore or a junior in college, I think. Something around there. But uh, I remember it opening. All the culinary students knew about it. Uh, maybe the teachers had told us something like that. So it was kind of all the buzz. And so the big hype was, okay, when it opens, when they open positions, you know, you got to go down there and apply. So I'm waiting days and days, construction's being pushed back. And finally, I find out, you know, on their website that they're open for applications and to come down for like informal interviews. So I filled out an application. I walked a few blocks down the street and um, I was just so pumped. I, I was so nervous <laughs> and I knew there was like probably a hundred students that had applied. So I knew my chances were, I don't know, I guess small, same as everybody. Was this internship like? Well, it wasn't an internship. I had previously actually done an internship at a Ritz-Carlton in South Beach, Miami. So I had done that about a year before. So I was hoping that kind of increased my chances, right? Because I had worked at a Ritz before and I had great references, but you know, you never know. I was still super nervous. So I went down there for the interview and they put me in a little waiting area and I finally get called in to speak with like an HR representative. And she was like, Ashley. And I was like, yes. She was like, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton family. Here's your onboarding paperwork. And I was so confused. I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, just do to you be want clear. Me? Does this mean you want just me? To be clear. Is this an interview? Or she was like, oh no, honey. She was like, we got your application. You know, you've worked with us. We, you had great references. She was like, this is onboarding. We'd love to have you. So that was really, really exciting. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did that become a full-time job? That did, yeah. I, I worked there full-time for a few years. Kind of worked my way up from like breakfast line cook. They had like a specialty, kind of like a bar, wine bar, really fancy, really fancy little snacks and things like that on the rooftop um, level. So it kind of worked my way up and through the kitchen, different areas, but it was a great experience. It it was tough. It wasn't easy. Kitchen work is not easy. I worked every weekend. I worked nights. I worked 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. shifts. I worked Thanksgiving, Christmas. It was grueling to say the least, but I learned a lot. I want to ask you, while there, were you one of the few young female black chefs? Yeah. Honestly, throughout my career, I've always been one of the few young female and black women in in the kitchen. It's it's a man's world. It's changing, Mm -hmm. but you still find, you know, a ton of men kind of filling those roles. Changing as slow as molasses, no pun intended, I mean, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, mm. yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, women are slowly starting to kind of penetrate that industry. And then 
uh, people of color, especially being both. So yeah, definitely. The Ritz is, they pride themselves on diversity. So to say it wasn't diverse is not true. There were kind of different backgrounds, races, everything in all the different departments. But um, in the kitchen specifically, yeah, I was probably one of maybe three black people and black women. I think I was the only one in the kitchen. Wow. Did you feel comfortable there? You were treated with respect. You were treated well. Yeah, I was. I mean, it's not something I wasn't used to. (laughs) You know, sometimes just in the world, you find yourself being the only woman in a a room full of men or the only um, black in the room full of of whites. You know, it's just kind of something that you're used to. So that didn't really scare me or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But no, yeah, I was treated with respect. I think my peers were all kind of in the same boat as me. So we all kind of banded together, which was really cool. How long were you there? I think about three years. And then when you were sitting in your trade street apartment, is that when that epiphany came to you? It was. um, So during this time, I was always making something. I had a little blog called I Speak Kitchenese. (laughs) And uh, I remember I was making food and shooting and writing these blurbs for the blog. I used to host these food swaps, which were really fun. I would get like 20 people together and you would bring, say, eight to 10 portions of a dish and you'd all come together. So it can be anything from a jar of pickles and you'd have like 10 small jars. Some people would do collard green dip and then put it in like little containers, whatever it was. But like whatever your dish was, you make like eight portions and you come around, you put lay it out on a table, you put like a little card and you walk around and see what you want to take home and you write your name on the card. There might only be eight portions of it, but there's 20 people. So, you know, you got to see what you want as soon or as you push can. somebody or, out of your way <laughs> or push somebody out or push somebody out. So that was so fun because it was just like fellowship, like everyone getting together and just enjoying food and you get to go home with great things. So I would always make some really fun preserved dishes. Jam was always something. Um, I loved like making pickles or zucchini pickles or just something like that you could preserve. I was definitely into that, but yeah, people were into the jam and I, I loved making it. And I just remember sitting at my kitchen table with a friend brainstorming some things. And I told her, I'm going to make a jam company one day and I'm going to call it Trade Street Jam Company. This was 2008. And she said, I love it, honey, write it down. <laughs> so I, uh, I was doing a million things. So she was like, that's great. Write it down. You're doing the most right now, but write it down. And her advice was the best because I wrote it down. And then it was about five years ago that I moved out to Brooklyn and just really got inspired by the culture, the art, the food, the makers, and started kind of making these small batch jams again in the kitchen. Can I ask you a personal question? Absolutely. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. So you're young and you've got quite uh, quite the street cred. Thank you. No. (laughs) Well, listen, I don't suffer fools gladly. That's the truth. (laughs) So why Brooklyn? Had you ever been to Brooklyn before? No. So um, actually I was working. So I was working in North Carolina at a hospital working in the food service. So I've kind of like made my way around all different like facets of it. Right. So I was a chef at a hospital and I hated it to say the least. Probably one of the most oxymoronic, a chef in a hospital. Yeah cafeteria or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I worked for Compass Group, which is the biggest food service company 
in the world. So, you know, they have so much opportunity, which is awesome. So I moved around a lot um, with Compass, but hospitals are definitely something that they serve food for. And it's really important. You're, you're feeding people that are sick, people that have hurt certain dietary restrictions. So really important job. So right. it was the first time for me having a salary, not being paid, paid hourly, being a chef, having an office. So it was a big deal. And it, yeah, it turns out I hated it. The staff was <laughs> awful to me. I mean, I was miserable. The staff was miserable and they projected that on me wow. and had been in Charlotte for four years after culinary school at this point. And so I had already known I really wanted to move somewhere just another state, just get out of North Carolina and move. And so I was talking to my now husband and, you know, we're talking about maybe Chicago, which is where my family is. And he loved Chicago. So we were kind of talking about different things. I wanted Atlanta. He wasn't feeling it. And then, so he told me he was going to start applying places and we'd see what happened. And he literally called me one day on my office phone and he's like, Hey babe. I'm like, Hey, what's up? And he's like, I got the job. And I'm like, which job, like what job, (laughs) which job, like congrats. What, you know, and he's like, he's like, Oh, you know, with this sports marketing company. And he's like, and we're moving to Stanford. And I was like, Stanford, California. I don't understand. And he's like, no, Stanford, Connecticut. And I was like, Oh, okay. And he goes, yeah. And I was like, well, congratulations. He's like, yeah, this is exciting. And I was like, okay, bye. And I remember hanging up the phone, closing my office door and crying crying because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I wanted to move. I'm going with this guy who, who I'm married to now, but we were not engaged at the time. So, you know, yeah. it's a big deal to kind of follow someone. Duh. And I'm like, what the hell is in Stanford, Connecticut? And so I'm just, I had to cry it out. And I called my mom and she said, honey, that is just an hour from New York city. <laughs> And I said, oh, is it? I had no idea, right? I'm like, oh, is it? She's like, yes. She's like, you will be great in New York City. I see that all over you. She was like, honey, we can do anything for a year. If you don't like it, you come on back here. But, you know, she's like, you got this. And she literally made it all better, like moms tend to do. And I knew I hated this job and I was ready to go. So we picked up and we went to Stanford And we spent a lot of time kind of commuting an hour to the city to hang out and do things like that. And long story short, I ended up getting the job I had in Stanford. They wanted to promote me to open the new World Trade Center in the city. And so I took the position and I was commuting back and forth and it was exhausting. And so we decided we got to move closer. We didn't want to live in Manhattan. So Brooklyn seemed like the next best thing. So you didn't have difficulty getting a job in the move. No, no. So that's the one of the great things about Compass is that it's a huge, huge food service provider. So you can find a job anywhere. I, I put everybody that I know on a Compass because I think it's great when you're young and you want to move around. It gives you a little bit of job stability, which mm-hmm. is nice, especially mm-hmm. in an industry like food. Restaurants are not stable. Those positions are fleeting. So I think it, it just gave me this stability. So I, I remember applying for a job in Stanford. I remember my boss in Charlotte at the hospital at the time told me, I just want to let you know, I used to work in New York and it's a very competitive industry. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think you're going to make it out there. Oh, jeez. And because I'm a strong woman, I come from a strong woman background. I kind of gave him the finger in my head and I... uh, Too bad he didn't verbalize it. 
I, you know, I mean, honestly, my mom has taught me so well um, to just be poised and to have respect, especially in your job. So I've never been fired. I've never walked out. I've never well, done all classy. the things that mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so classy. And I get mm-hmm. that from my mother. I will pass that along to my children. But like, you don't you don't do that in a job. You just don't. And so all the times I wanted to walk out or leave or curse my boss out, I've never done anything like that. So I kind of just went out in the car and cried, did one of those things and prayed help me to not just like punch this guy and walk out or something crazy. Um, so I applied for the job and I remember uh, me and my now husband went to Stanford for the weekend to look at places. And I was hoping that they would call me in for an interview while I was there, but I was kind of waiting on the recruiter and I hadn't heard back. So, you know, I brought like an outfit just to go if they called me, but it was the last day before we left. And I'm like, damn it, they're not going to call. I don't know what I'm going to do. And they called and they said, Hey, are you around for an interview anytime soon? And I said, how about today? (laughs) And they said, actually, really? I said, yeah, I'm in town. You know, I'm going back to to North Carolina. They said, okay, come on in. So I went in for an interview and uh, I met with the director and I met with the manager who would have been my two bosses. And I remember they had a stoic straight face. They never really smiled. I think I cracked like a little, you know, not not a joke, but, you know, said something like. (laughs) You were trying to (laughs) act like a human. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And they did not really laugh or smile. And I did the best I could. And I just remember thinking on paper, I am it. So I've got a good chance here. They didn't really show me much, but I'm hoping I'm praying for this because it was literally down the street from the apartment we looked at. Like I could have walked. So I knew it'd be perfect. And I eventually, I, I got the position. And the funny thing is after working there for a few months, I was talking to my boss and I said, yeah, I remember when I tried to get this job, you know, I didn't know if I was going to get it. You guys were so serious. I was so scared. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, the moment you walked in here, we knew you were the one. And I just thought back to my boss saying, you're not going to make it out there. And I did that job for about two years. And then they promoted me to, to the World Trade Center. And I had a great ending career with Compass Group. I really didn't want to leave. If it wasn't for this jam company, I'd still be working with them. So it was really, really great experience. Well, it sounds like it's a really great stepping stone. And now since you said jam company, I want to talk about this. Let me just say how I found you, that I was reading a fascinating article in the food section of the New York Times, and I'm just going to read the headline, Spreading Awareness of Inequity, Black Jam Makers Talk About a Lack of Fairness in a Craft Food Movement That Limits Their Opportunities for Recognition and Broader Success. To which I said, what? What do you mean a black jam company? That was kind of not something on my front burner. So the article was really fascinating. It featured you as well as other women. And I'm wondering, as we get into your company, did you know you were doing that at the outset? And I'm using this term in quotes that what you were doing was political? Oh gosh, no, absolutely not. I don't think I knew anything in the beginning except for, I like jam, I'm going to make some jam. I didn't think about being a black woman jam maker. I didn't think about the diversity or lack thereof that I would face moving forward with the company. I didn't think about really anything. I mean, this political environment is so strong right now that a lot of things that have always existed are coming to the forefront. And it's funny because for me, none none of this is new. 
you know, nothing's new. Being the only black woman doing something is, Mm -hmm. has never been new since I was little. I remember my mom opened a, um, curves. It was like an exercise place for women back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she was the only black woman that I knew that was like being an entrepreneur. I didn't even know that word at the time, but that was opening something, you know, and all the women in the curves were white women. That was something that I was used to. So, you know, it was never, oh, I'm doing this or making a movement or trying to do that. You know, that's something I just did. All the other things have followed. So Mm -hmm. no, I had, I had no idea, but I love that a lot of things are kind of being unearthed brought to the front, a lot of uncomfortable conversations with the Black Lives Matter and all that. I, Black people have unfortunately been targeted in the past. So again, this is not new, but I do love that this climate is deciding to kind of like talk about it more comfortably with each other. The momentum is really there in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Absolutely. So are you still living in Stanford when you think about doing this? No. So we had moved from Stanford to Brooklyn. Okay. And it was our first apartment in Brooklyn. And that's when I decided to kind of bring it back. Right. So I'm not, I, I'm a busybody. I like to do things. I don't like kind of sitting around. So I, I don't understand the concept of when people get off work and they like Netflix all evening for like six hours and then they go to bed. Well, that's fun to do every now and then, but I'm the type of person that like, when I get off work, okay, like now what's next? Like I need a, a tat. I need something to do. Type like, A personality, huh? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, you know, my husband could sit there and play video games for the evening and just like enjoy <laughs> his life and, and more power to him. Right. And eat your jam. Just, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I needed, I needed something a little bit more. So that's when I started, uh, I said, how about I make this jam? Because we had visited these like makers markets. So they have a ton of these out here, which we, we didn't have in North Carolina and they're just big markets. It's like almost a warehouse you go in and there's all these different booths and people are making ties and sauces and jewelry and vintage scarves and all this like crazy right, stuff. And right. it's, it's so awesome. You know, we didn't have that. And it's, it's so inspiring because you see these people and you can tell just by looking at them that some of them are huge, maybe huge successes and have been doing this for years, but other ones you can tell and not in a bad way that they're kind of bootstrapping it. This is like what they love and it probably needs some work, but with patience and time and persistence, it will be something. And I, I, it's so endearing. It really is just great. And so I was just really inspired and I said, Hey, I'm going to start making some jam. Maybe I can sell it at one of these markets one day. So, ah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started doing the jam. I, I created it like an Etsy store, started selling it on Etsy and then started eventually kind of researching what it took. I didn't know if I could get into these big markets which is funny because now I've done hundreds of them. People reach out to us for markets. So it really has come a long way, which is awesome. But that's kind of where it started. So all this is being done in your personal kitchen. Absolutely. In my tiny kitchen kitchen now in Brooklyn. Yep. All being made. We we started off doing small batch jars. So making about 30 jars per per batch. And I had this concept, which was really cool at the time, which was I'd come up with this flavor. And then once the jar sold out, I would retire the flavor and I would bring something new out. Ah, Yeah. uh It was really always teasing in a sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm a chef, so I've got all this, I mean, I've got a list in my phone now with at least a hundred like flavor combinations. So I never would run out of that. So it was really fun to do. And people thought it was exciting. Like, Oh, I really love that. Let me get it. Let me get a few jars because it's gone after that. So I had no kind of business acumen. I had no idea that that's a terrible 
method for business? How can you, how is it sustainable to change flavors every, every month? 20 minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Until my husband said, I don't think that's going to work for the future (laughs) as I started to grow, but it was really fun in the beginning. Who's we? People have asked that before. I have a habit of doing that. I'm just now starting to build a, a tiny little team. I say we a lot. My husband has been so just everything helpful. He's done so much in this business. He's not officially a part of the business, but he is a marketing consultant on his own. So he he literally has just been there for me in every facet of the business. He also did those markets with me for at least a year, maybe two years when I couldn't carry the tent and the table and do all this by myself no and kidding. didn't know how to sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He did these markets with me, the Christmas Eve markets where we're selling our butts off before the holiday. I mean, he has done so much in the business. So a lot of times when I say we, I mean him and I, and then well, obviously you know, now you don't I'm, charge him for jars of jam. He gets to have the jam gratis. He gets unlimited jam. He gets unlimited jam. Okay, so that's a good trade off. That's a good trade off for him. And then again, starting to build a tiny team. So I have a an e-com specialist that kind of uh, she does my newsletter. She helps with my website SEO and kind of growing the brand. And then I have a, a marketing manager who does like partnerships, collaborations, and social media. So starting to like build, but it, I mean it's hard. It takes time. Did the flavors just come to you? Strawberry, chipotle, and fig. Who would ever think that that was a combo? I'll be honest with you. A lot of them just came to me. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like, ooh, I should make this. And I would just write it down on my phone. I've been a chef and like been in the kitchen for so long that it's almost like when you... You know, when you know how to do something, sometimes you don't have to test it out. You just kind of know. You're, right? you're that secure in it. Yes, I, I yeah. understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was almost like that. It's like if you're going to make a chicken dish and you're like, oh, I've got some mustard, I'm going to make a glaze and put on the chicken. Like you don't have to really try it. Like, you know that like it's going to probably make a good glaze. Things go good on chicken. Like it's kind of that. It's like I know that strawberries and figs go really well together. I've had a fig jam. Um, I can tell that strawberries will sweeten that up a little bit. But ooh, if it was spicy, then it would really have a kick to it. So let's do something spicy in there. Hmm, Jalapenos, that's been done before. I don't really want the pieces in there. Ooh, what about a chipotle? That would give it a smokiness. Let's try that. And the cool thing is, is that was one of the first few jams that we did. It's still around. It's our number one bestseller. And it's just been so popular. I think people resonate with the strawberry and the fig and then the heat kind of surprises them on the back end. You have to also appreciate where I come from. The kitchen is a very foreign room for me. It's how I can go from my dining room to my living room. (laughs) My late husband was an amazing, amazing cook. And I think that would have been something down the road that he would have liked to have made his career. And so the irony for me is with this pandemic, I've been, and I definitely use this term in quotes, cooking. (laughs) Nothing very (laughs) sexy or exciting. But when I talk to women like you, just like I would talk to an artist, how do you do this? You have to come to accept the fact that these are natural acts. This is what you have to do. I'm not saying it's a bed of roses, but this is who you are. You said that very eloquently. I think that's exactly what it is. Actually, right out of college, I had started another business, which was a custom 
alterations business. So people would like send in their clothes and I would kind of alter them to make them new and exciting. I would bleach or distress them or do all these funky things because I have like a 10 year sewing background, something my mother put me in when I was young and I, it stuck. But I remember a turning point where I was reading an article about a, a food brand who had kind of made it. And he was saying some of the mistakes he made. And he said, the number one biggest mistake was trying to start two businesses at once. And I felt like he was talking to me because I had wanted to do the jam and I'd started making stuff on Etsy, but I was still kind of doing this clothing business. And it got to a turning point. I was like, I can't do both. And food was just in me. I didn't have any retail experience, right? I had the sewing mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. So the skill was there. But I didn't, you know, I never worked in a clothing store. I don't know anything about the fashion industry other than I like spending money and wearing clothes. (laughs) Other than I wear clothes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like I don't have any experience in it. But on the other hand, my mom paid for this expensive degree. I have years of culinary experience. I love to cook. Food is in me. I love to eat. I love to drink and make craft cocktails, all this. So it kind of was just like, what, what are you fighting right now? So to your point, it's in me. Well, yes, it's a, if I can put words in your mouth, it's a job along with being a labor of love. And to have that marriage is so great. So with all of your product, you're not making these in your Brooklyn apartment kitchen anymore, are you? I am not. So I went from making it in my kitchen to thinking, hmm, this isn't going to work anymore. How can I afford to rent a space? So we went to a shared kitchen where you rent a space hourly And it would be me and my husband who has zero culinary or kitchen background. So does not know his way around a kitchen. (laughs) Sounds like uh, me. Thank God he and I aren't married. Oh, yeah. He's I've got on non-slip shoes. He's got on Jordan sneakers and he's slipping and sliding all over the wet floor. And he's just, God, he is like the love of my life. He's such a sweetheart. I mean, he did that for so many days and weekends without complaint. And when I tell you that I am the opposite, if it was me doing it for him, I will do it. I will do anything for him, but I will complain the entire way. A woman Um, after my own heart. Don't apologize. uh, Don't apologize. I mean, so it was very bittersweet to watch him do those things for me, but I also felt so bad. But we did that and I got friends to kind of volunteer that friends that I didn't know from the kitchen, um, friends that just wanted to help grow the business. And I would get different friends each time and we'd go in there for an eight hour shift and we'd try to make 200 jars of, of a flavor or two. And then I would go, you know, move them at these markets. So that was the next step after that. And then after doing that for about a year, that was grueling and miserable because you have to bring all your equipment. You have to try to lock it up. Sometimes I'd come and it would be, it would be like moved or, or something would be taken something small. And I would be like pissed about it. I hated it. So the next step, my husband, he's always helping try to grow the business. He says, well, the next step is you need a co-packer. And I go, how in the hell are we going to afford that? And he's like, we will trust me. So I go, I start doing my research I start calculating out the costs and everything. And lo and behold, if I was paying the friends that were helping me, it would have been more expensive than getting the co-packer. And I knew that that was the next like sustainable step in the business. So we ended up switching to a co-packer one week before I left my full-time job to do the jam full-time. Wow. So the stars were aligned in a sense. They were beyond aligned, honestly. So you've been doing this now for how many years? For four years. For four years. And so you've watched this baby grow into a child. And this is what feeds your soul 
Are you making a profit? Yeah. So I'm starting to make a profit now, which is awesome. Probably like the first year and a half to two years, it wasn't very profitable. You know, I, I'd, I'd make money, but then all the money would go back out to back into, into the business. business. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a profitable company. It was bringing in money, but it was just going all back out the door. And then again, it was my husband who said, you know what, honey, you made, I think, you know, last year it was, it was so exciting. I made like $120,000 and I was like, man, that's awesome. Now it didn't go in my pocket. I would never mm-hmm. tell anyone I made a salary of $120,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got never, mm-hmm. never. But the, the business made that, but I had nothing to show for it. I, I still had maybe five grand in the bank in my business bank account. I had just my regular checking and savings, which was minimal to say the least. So I had nothing to show for it. You wouldn't know that I had done that. And it's because I wasn't paying myself I wasn't taking any money out of the business to kind of hold to the side. I was just making it and then spending it back in the business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it was him who, you know, we kind of calculated out without having much experience in any of this. We kind of just put some numbers down and said, okay, what if you get your, your net profit and then we get down to your gross profit and then we take a a percentage of that gross profit and we just hold it to the side in a business savings account, in some account, just so that you can start seeing the fruits of your labor. And I remember when he said, I said, said, I'm going to take this percentage out. I don't have any money. How can I take that percentage (laughs) out? He said, take it out, take it out. And if you need to dig into it, then you can, but we need to, you need to start doing that. So you can see, and literally within a couple months, I had like 17 grand in the savings account. And I'm like, he's so right. Mm. If I didn't take that out, that 17 grand would have went right back in and I'd have nothing. So it's less about trying to get rich or make a salary off of it as it is to just have some money in a, an account that I can look at and say, wow, that 50 grand, that is for for me, for right. for whatever I want. If I right. want to put it in the business, I can. If if I want to be frivolous and spend it all, I could, whatever. But if that's what I yeah, need. Yeah, it's mine. It, yes. It's and, mine. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's important, you know, very important. I want to move over to your good works where are you teaching jam classes? You may not be doing that right now because the pandemic put uh, a stopper on so many things. I met Marcus Samuelson, who is like a famous Oh, chef. sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he um, started a company called CCAP, and it's like Careers Through Culinary Arts program. And so it's for kids. It's, it's kind of just teaching people, obviously, the things that they can do with a culinary degree. And there's so many like agricultural high schools around here and things like that, which I had no idea even existed. And so once I found out about this, I said, Hey, I'd love to volunteer my time to, to do some like jam classes or something like that. I think for me, if I'm not doing some type of community outreach or give back, there's no sense in being in business. And so I I knew it's a natural act for you. You have to, like, literally, you have to give back in some way. There's so many people, children, everything that just are just less fortunate in so many ways. I mean, living in New York, seeing all the homeless, I can't even get into that. It's just so much. And so when you look at that, you realize how rich you are. And I'm rich based on that. And so I need to give back something. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. if it's, you know, if it can't be money, then it can be my time. It can be my knowledge. So I started um, doing that. I've taught at some of these agricultural high schools, done like a little jam class. I've only done it about three times, but it's been so fulfilling. So these like young 15 year old students and they're 
clowning and making jokes and mm-hmm, stuff, but they're mm-hmm. they're making jam. And then to see them be like, oh, mine got thick. How did it get thick like that? And I'm like, yeah, we're making jam. Like that's how the, the sugar gelling process works and all this stuff. And afterwards they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then you're like, did they like this? Are they too old for this? And then they're like, uh-uh, don't touch my jam. I'm taking this home. <laughs> like, and you're like, they found something in this. But also for them to see what it looks like to be a young black female entrepreneur. Right. Because I'm sure the people that that were coming into their classes on like career day might have been older white men that work at a bank. And they're like, I'm, you know, the CFO of this like bank and I've worked my way up and all that. And that's great. But maybe that's not what's for you. Maybe you don't see that for yourself. I think Mm -hmm. some of these kids, if you grew up in a poor neighborhood, you don't see yourself being a CEO of like Bank of America or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you might see yourself being a head chef at a really cool restaurant in New York city mm-hmm. and then like traveling around or something like that. So just trying to show them other opportunities. Other, another initiative I'm working on is I have this dream of using residual jams from like a batch and getting a bunch of volunteers, let's say hundred, 200 volunteers together in a big warehouse and getting a peanut butter company to donate peanut butter and make all these PB and J's and then like go hand them out in the community. Oh, what a great so idea. Like, uh-huh. I mean, I have this whole, I've had this vision for so long and I've tried to work on it. You know, when I was smaller, a lot of people didn't want to give me the time of day. So I've reached out to like um, City Harvest and they're so big sure. now. They're like, right. you're a tiny, you're tiny. Like, what is this? And I had some conversation, but it never turned into So you had to take matters into your own hands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, timing's everything. I just had a kid, COVID's going on, my business is booming. So a lot's happening at this moment, but it's something that I haven't given up on and I I just can't wait to do. I just see it being so fun. And -hmm. rather than just take all the sandwiches to like a city harvest and let them handle it, I physically Mm -hmm. want us to like walk around and just distribute them out and like really get into the community and talk to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just feel like it's such a good act. And well, I think and it is a natural board. act for you. And that's what's so wonderful. What is on, no pun intended, the front burner for you when it comes to Trade Street Jam? What would you like to create that you haven't? Yeah, that's a great question. New jam flavors would be great. I think as you start to grow your business, innovation is very important, especially for me. So always trying to bring new things. We just did like a mocktail mix that we experimented with, which was really cool. So we we have a cherry jam, a sour cherry ginger jam, and it yields a ton of extra juice. And so I'm like, what can I do with this juice? It, you know, it doesn't have sugar in it. It's just like raw cherry juice. It's so good. So I made like a cherry chipotle mocktail mix. It's like the new wave, right? There's these companies doing like mocktail elixirs and all this stuff. And so it's basically a mix that, if you drink alcohol, yeah, it's great in bourbon. It's great with tequila. But if you don't, it's great in lemonade. It's it's good on its uh, own. It's, mm-hmm. you, know, you can do anything with it. It's really, really fun. So started doing that. That was really popular. So I'd love to get into doing some more like cocktail, mocktail mixes. I've always saw us doing like a simple syrup line. I think that would be really fun. What's in your jam sessions cookbook? So the cookbook is all different ways to use our jams. Okay. So salad dressings, desserts, a smoked peach cobbler with our smoked peach jam, cocktails, appetizers. There's a group of PB&Js in there, but like hooked up PB&Js for the kid and you. Mm. So yeah, a lot of fun stuff. Oh, that's wonderful. If I was your fairy godmother, a question that I ask my guests all the time, what would you ask of me? 
I would ask you for $150 million to buy my company and to progress it on to what it's meant to be and allow me to move on with my life and raise my kid and hopefully more kids and allow me to do some charitable work and I don't know, dabble in philanthropy and teach more classes. And I've always envisioned opening like a, a little store, like a Sir La Tab, but like maybe with black uh-huh. owned products uh-huh. so, or female owned products only to really highlight that. You know, I, I have all these things that I'd love to do um, moving forward, but I don't see myself working in the, the business forever. It's funny, as we've been having our conversation, I can't see you not doing something creative. Yeah. How's that yeah. for stating the obvious? Absolutely. So, Ashley, how do people access Trade Street Jam Company? So, our website is tradestjamco.com, Trade Street Jam Co. And that's our Instagram handle as well. So, tradestjamco. Follow us on Instagram. We put out tons of recipes. I will warn you, it will make you hungry if you aren't already. <laughs> uh, but it's it's really fun. It's colorful. It's bright. It's a really great way to learn more about the brand. And our website has tons of great jam, tons of gifts. It's perfect for the holidays. We sell aprons. We sell all sorts of things. So it's a really great brand to get behind. So it's just going to the website and ordering that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the best way to, to get us is online. Have you gotten any of your products into restaurants and on store shelves? Yeah, yeah. So we're in about 100 small like mom and pop shops, um, little gourmet grocery stores and things like that across the nation. And we actually just got into our first Whole Foods, a brand new one opening in Manhattan in Hudson Yards. So hopefully we'll be growing with the Whole Foods line. We've sent samples to Trader Joe's just recently. They reached out to us. So there's a lot in the works and we are, we're definitely growing on the storefront as well. Retail is something big, but for us, online is the best. And that's really where it's at. And it's funny because right before COVID, I said, why can't I just move this business to online? Trying to chase after these stores is exhausting. Why can't we grow online and, you know, have a strong e-commerce presence? And my husband was like, yeah, let's, let's work on that. And then COVID hit. Yeah, and really. like, I thank God that's the direction I wanted to go in. Yeah, it's all about the timing. Yeah. It's all about the timing. Well, this has been an easy, wonderful, fascinating conversation with clearly a classy lady. And I it's so, such my pleasure to have met, gotten to know you, and have you make my mouth water <laughs> during <laughs> so this, this conversation. And much more continued success. And I only ask of you to keep us in the loop. And any new yeah. things, please share with us. And if you've got a new project coming up, you know where to reach us. We can always do a part two. I love it. Will do. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.